The title of our sermon this morning is simply Paul Arrested, and the keywords for our worshipers in training are uh, Seized, Jerusalem, and Testimony. As we've been working our way through the book of Acts, we have seen now for several weeks, uh, really ever since we were in chapter 19, verse 21, we've seen the Apostle Paul, that he has been eager to return to Jerusalem. He was out on his, his third uh, missionary journey uh, to, to make disciples of Christ, to plant and to strengthen churches and and in Acts 19, he expresses a great desire to return to Jerusalem. We know from what he says in chapter 24 that that is largely to return, or not, uh, it's, he is intending to bring with him an offering that he's been collecting from the churches in his travels to take to the, uh, the, the saints in Jerusalem who were suffering with great poverty. And so he wants to get to Jerusalem to deliver that gift, and then he wants to make it even further to Rome. Now, ever since Acts 20.23, it has been clear that Paul also knew that he was uh, getting himself into some trouble by going to Jerusalem. He says that the Holy Spirit had told him that affliction was waiting for him once he got there. And then in 21.13, he said that he was willing even to be imprisoned or to die for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so last week in 21.15 and following, we saw Paul arrive in Jerusalem. Despite various pleas and requests of his friends and traveling companions, Paul was on a mission to finish the course that the Lord Jesus had given him to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And so he came to Jerusalem last week. And in our passage today, we will see that within no time at all, the concerns were valid. The crowds in Jerusalem attempt to murder him. We find Paul this morning at the end of his labor of love, which we considered in last week's sermon. He had been asked by James and the elders in the church in Jerusalem to oversee the purification rite of four men who had taken the Nazarite vow. You see, because of the, the message of free grace that Paul preached, the freedom with which he lived, whereby he himself did not consider himself to be bound to live as a Jew under the, the totality of the Mosaic law. He had been freed from that burden, though he was not free from obedience to Christ. Um, he was freed from it. He did not live uh, constantly as a Jew, and because he was associated with the, the inbringing of Gentiles into the covenant community of faith, many Jews had come to believe that Paul required the Jews to abandon their cultural heritage as Israelites in order to be saved. In other words, they believed that he, he expected them to become Gentiles. But Paul taught no such thing. He refused to require Gentiles to be circumcised the really defining cultural mark of the Jewish people at the time. Um, but the other apostles at the Jerusalem council had also required this, 
or had also agreed upon this at Acts 15, that the Gentiles coming to faith did not have to be circumcised. And Paul also taught that neither Jews nor Gentiles could be saved through their own keeping of the law. In fact, this was why they agreed that the Gentiles didn't need to be circumcised. But Paul in no place taught that Jews had to become Gentiles in order to be saved. And as we mentioned last week, this is a especially pertinent fact in light of the temple's existence at the time. The temple still stood. It had not been brought to an end. The Old Covenant era had not been completely shattered. And so in this moment, Paul concesses to James and the elders um, because he wanted to be clear that he was not in the business as a faithful Jew of desecrating the temple, which at the time still stood. And so to uphold this truth before the eyes of all, Paul oversaw the purification rite of these four men in the Jerusalem church who had taken this vow. And uh, we pick up today in verse 27 with the vow nearing its end. The end of the seven days was almost complete. And so Paul had given notice that he would cover the expenses of the offering to be presented for these men. And this is where our text picks up. And I want to read beginning in verse 27 all the way through 22:21. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him, that is Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place, that is the temple. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune, the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when he saw that, when they saw that the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up 
but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one, Ananias, a a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw Him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you away to the Gentiles. There are uh, just two parts to the sermon this morning. First, in verses 27 through 36 of chapter 21, we'll see Paul's arrest in the temple. And then second, in verses 37 of chapter 21 through 22, 21, we'll, we'll consider Paul's address to the people. Uh, and then we'll conclude with some extended applications at the end. So look with me in the first place at chapter 21, verses 27 through 36, where we see Paul accused, dragged out of the temple, and nearly beaten to death until he is arrested by the Roman tribune. Luke tells us that at the end of, near the end of these seven days, uh, there were some Jews from Asia, possibly some of the same folks who had been involved in some way in the riot that we saw in Ephesus in uh, chapter 18. Uh, these Jews from Asia, they, they saw Paul in the temple, and so they, they seek to stir up the crowd against him, and they bring two main accusations against Paul. First, they say that he is... He is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people, against the law, and against the temple. And second, since they had previously seen Paul with a man they knew to be a Gentile from Ephesus, 
named Trophimus. They saw them out in the city, though they, Luke includes they had not seen him in the temple with Trophimus. They, um, they presumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Now, it, this was a, a crime punishable by death in Jerusalem to bring a Gentile into the, the temple. There was an outer court whereby uh, there was like two outer courts. There was an outer court, an outer outer court, and an inner outer court. The outer outer court was for Gentiles. Anything beyond that was for Jews alone in the temple. And so they, they presumed that Paul had brought Trophimus into at least this inner part. And so they, it was a misunderstanding, Luke tells us. It doesn't appear that they knowingly made it up. They didn't lie about it in that regard. But they, they, it was a useful misunderstanding for them. And so they spread the lie without asking too many questions, trying to confirm its veracity, whether he had brought the man into the temple or not. And so these two accusations that Paul taught against the people of the law in the temple and that he had defiled the temple by bringing a Gentile into it, uh, it was enough to stir up the whole city at this point. And so they rush in. Paul is seized and dragged out of the temple and the gates are shut behind him. And it, it's at this point that uh, they, they begin to beat Paul seeking to end his life. They try to beat Paul to death but the, the tribune, whose name is Claudius Lysias, according to what Luke writes in Acts 23, 26, um, Claudius hears the confusion, he hears the commotion, and he brings soldiers and centurions with him in order to inter- intervene. And so the tribune was uh, oversaw probably a thousand soldiers, and so he brings uh, a, a, a good handful of people with him. And so when the crowd saw... Him, Claudius, and the rest of the soldiers, however many he had, they ceased to beat Paul. And then interestingly, Claudius arrests not anyone in the crowd who had been attempting to beat a man to death, but he arrests Paul, the beaten man. He has Paul bound with two chains, and he asks, who is this man? What has he done? Well, predictably, this crowd can give no coherent answer. Luke tells us some accused Paul of one thing, others said another thing. This is just like what we saw uh, back at the riot in Ephesus in Acts 18, 32. Luke tells us there they had gathered together with two of Paul's companions. They were, were forming this mob and some cried out one thing, others cried out another thing, but most of them didn't even really have any idea why they had come together. It's a similar thing that we see happening here in Jerusalem. And so, failing to obtain the information that he sought, Claudius orders Paul to be brought into the barracks, some uh, fairly short distance away from the temple. And so the violent crowd follows them, crying out, away with him, away with him. And on the way, as they reach the steps, Paul interjects and he asks if he may speak with Claudius. He's surprised, the tribune, of course, He asked if Paul knows Greek because either through his preconceived notions that he already had or perhaps through the the garbled mess of an accusation that he was sort of getting from the crowd, he, he was believing, he was thinking that Paul was this Egyptian terrorist who had stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. Um, uh, 
about three years prior to this encounter here uh, with Paul, there was this uh, Egyptian man. He had apparently promised some 4,000 dagger men, assassins, that, that the walls of Jerusalem would fall at his command. And at that point, they would be able to break into the city, overpower the Romans, and overthrow their oppressive rule. But Felix, uh, the governor whom we'll meet in chapter 24, uh, he is said to have intervened, um, and, and so the, assa- the assassins are scattered. Some of them are killed, some are captured, but the, the, the leader, this Egyptian man leader, he disappeared. And apparently Claudius was under the impression at this moment, again, either from his own mind or from what someone in the crowd had said, he was thinking that he had perhaps caught this... Um, this escapee, and so he was surprised that, um, that Paul was speaking Greek. Well, Paul informs him, however, that he was a Jew from Tarsus, uh, Tarsus in Cilicia, and he says, this, this is not an obscure city. Uh, I read this week that uh, Tarsus is one of the wealthiest um, and greatest university cities of the Roman world at the time. Paul was well-educated. He was a very intelligent and instructed man. And so Claudius, um, despite having arrested this man, um, even though he was the one being um, assaulted, he, he seems to, to have a sense, that uh, some kind of sense of justice. And so he, he, wants, he allows Paul to speak to the crowd, and so Paul motions for the crowd to be silent, to which it somewhat surprisingly uh, agrees, and he speaks. But before we look at what he speaks, so I want you to imagine this moment. Imagine the intensity of this moment, the great quiet hush that has fallen upon this crowd. Paul, probably covered in blood and soon to be bruises, he stands before a silent crowd as it waits with bated breath for him to speak. Now, what, what is it that they are hoping to hear? Think about it for a moment. What is it that this crowd wants? What is it that the people want to hear from Paul? Do they want to hear him clarify? They want, oh, now I get it, Paul. Now I understand what you were doing. We had it all wrong. Would you please forgive us? Let us bind up your wounds and pay for the expenses. No. They are, all, they are certainly not, based on what they have just done and what they will do as he speaks, they're not interested in learning from him. They don't want to understand him. They have already reached their conclusion. They have condemned him in their minds. What they hope is that he will do their job for them and condemn himself with his own words. How unnerving would that be? Some studies say that people fear public speaking more than they fear death. And even, I don't know if studies prove that, but anecdotally, even just talking to some of you, I think that's probably true. We don't like public speaking. We don't like talking. Well, some of us don't like it. Think about it. Imagine the moment. You have been beaten. They were trying to kill you. Someone intervenes, and now you're making a speech to this mob, and if you mess up, you're going to die. What would you say? What defense for yourself, for the gospel? What, 
for the gospel? What, do, what would you say? That's the question that I think we should have in our minds as we proceed here into Paul's address. So in the second place, then look with me, beginning um, chapter 20. Um, Really, the first, so we went all the way through the chapter with the first point. So now we're in chapter 22. Paul gives his defense, and he tactfully addresses the crowd uh, in verse 2 in the Hebrew language. Or there's a footnote there in my Bible, probably in yours, or maybe the Hebrew dialect. It could have been Aramaic that he was speaking. Either way, it would have been a language, either Hebrew or Aramaic. They would have spoken probably in Aramaic. And so they, now they're really listening. You could really hear a pin drop. And here's how he begins. Brothers... And fathers, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia. He tells them that he was brought up in Jerusalem, just like they were. Taught by Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of their fathers. He declares to them just how zealous for God's law that he was. He says, just like you are now. And he describes his zeal for them by saying, I was so zealous for God that I persecuted this very way that I am now a part of. I, I, I delivered them over to death. I bound them and brought them to prison, both men and women. He says, and if you don't believe me, you can ask the high priest. Ask the whole council of elders. They gave me letters themselves authorizing me to bind the Christians in Damascus and bring them to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul here skillfully professes before the Jewish crowd, which was bent on condemning him by their false claims that he was teaching against the Jews, against the law, and against the temple, and that he had defiled the whole place. He professes before them they need to know something. He says, my Jewish roots and my loyalty to the Jewish people, they're legit he had genuine bona fides, as they say. He was no enemy to his own Jewish heritage. However, something did change. Something changed that helped him to rightly understand his own heritage. He loved the people. He loved the law. He loved the temple. And even more than that, he loved, all, he, all, he loved that which to those things pointed. You see, as he was on his way to Damascus for said persecuting endeavors, a great heavenly light suddenly shone around him, a light brighter than the sun, and it blinded him. And so Paul falls to the ground and he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? If you're just joining us, Paul and Saul are just his Hebrew and Greek variations of his name. So the voice says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To which he replies, who are you, Lord? The voice replies, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. This event is recorded for us in Acts 9, and so we're going to try not to retread all the the same ground here in Paul's retelling of it. But he helps us to see here, tells us that his traveling companions, uh, they, they could understand that something was being said. They heard something, but they couldn't understand what was being said. 
But nevertheless, the conversation between Paul and Jesus continues, and Paul asks, what shall I do? Jesus tells him, go into Damascus where you will learn further what has been appointed for you to do. And so temporarily blind, Paul is led by the hand by those who are with him, and he dutifully goes to Damascus. He then recounts uh, for his audience his time with Ananias, a man uh, whom he makes a point to describe as a devout man according to the law, who had a good reputation among the Jews in Damascus. This man, Ananias, restores his sight, saying, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness to him, or for him, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And then he says, And why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now we know from the account in Acts 9 that after these things, Paul stayed in Damascus some time. He stayed to tell everyone there that he could, that Jesus was the Christ. And of course, even then, it began to stir up the Jews and they wanted to kill him. And so Luke records for us there in Acts 9 that he returned shortly after to Jerusalem. Now here in Acts 22, Paul picks up his testimony. He doesn't include this part about what he did in Damascus after his baptism, but he picks up after returning to Jerusalem, telling the crowd that one day while he was in the temple praying, God came to him in a vision and told him to get out of Jerusalem because the Jews would not accept his testimony. Which, of course, he did. He ends up leaving and finding himself eventually in Antioch, where he's sent out on his three missionary journeys. And now he's back in Jerusalem. But at the time, shortly after conversion, the Lord says, this isn't the time. you got to go. And so Paul, he goes, but he seems to think here in this exchange with the Lord that his testimony should prove... Um, to give him some credibility with the people. I was a persecutor of the church, and now I'm not. Surely that would be useful in sharing the testimony of Christ. Now verse 20 is a verse that the significance of it might be easy to miss. He he references Stephen. Which Stephen, you remember, in Acts 6 was appointed as one of the seven Uh, along with Philip, whom we saw uh, recently as well in um, Caesarea. Stephen, one of the seven, he ends up um, preaching in Acts 7 after being accused of very similar things. They accuse Stephen. He's preaching against Moses and the law. And so Stephen preaches a sermon and then is stoned to death. Paul, remember, oversaw it. He stood by and gave approval to it. He was at least one of the men in charge of Stephen's death. And so Saul calls this to mind. Paul calls this to mind here. He describes to the Lord his own conviction that his testimony, as I said, should prove powerful in winning an audience to him to testify for Jesus. And he includes this line about Stephen. He says, when the blood of Stephen, your servant, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Friends, this is more than historical recollection. 
It's more than simply saying, hey, I was really against the way, so they should listen to me. It is that, but it's more than that. Do you think Paul ever forgot that day? Ever forgot the day when Stephen died? Stephen, remember, how does he die? But he dies by being stoned to death. And as he's being stoned to death, he looks into heaven and he sees Christ standing at the right hand of God in protest over what is being done to his servant. And he calls it out. He says it. And here Paul, not only shortly after his conversion, but even many, many, many years later, when he's back in Jerusalem, about to face his own trial, he thinks of Stephen. Two or more decades after the event, Paul remembers. It isn't left his mind, and it serves as a powerful motivation for him. He knows what the testimony of Stephen did to him, and now he hopes that his testimony might do the same to others. So brothers and sisters, the question for us from this point here is this. What impact do you hope to leave by your life, possibly even your death? What will your children and your grandchildren and your great children remember about you? What might a coworker or a classmate or a next-door neighbor remember about your life, about your suffering, about your witness 20 or 30 years from now? I pray that God would help us to be faithful and that He would be pleased to use us in countless ways that we may not even know what they are for years, decades, centuries, or millennia to come. And so whatever hope of a legacy we want to leave, we have to consider what it means to be faithful now. Just like Stephen was. Just like Paul is here. Just like their Lord Jesus was prior. And so Paul offers this thought. I have Stephen, Lord, in my mind. I have my, my sin and the way you've overcome it. And the Lord says, nevertheless, go, because I'm sending you to the Gentiles. This is way bigger than you even realize, Paul. It's not just about winning the Jews in Jerusalem today. It's about winning the world. Go. And this, at this point, when, when Paul recollects this conversation to the crowd, it is at this point when he says that the Lord himself said he was sending him to the Gentiles, that the crowd erupts and interrupts. They've had enough. The affirmation of the Gentiles, it was just too much. And so this is where we'll pick up, Lord willing, next week. And we'll see their interruption and what follows. But I want to offer a few lessons that we can draw from this text before we close. First, consider the composure, the steadiness, and the gentleness of Paul's defense before the angry mob. Remember, he had nearly been beaten to death, and he surely would have been had the tribune not arrived to stop it. And yet, when he is given a chance to speak to the crowd, what does he say? What would, again, we come back, what would you have said? 
right? Would you have been tempted to revile, to curse and scream at these people? You might have been too afraid to do so, but based on everything Paul says, we realize he's not afraid at all. But he's very gracious. He calls them brothers and fathers. Like Jesus, he does not revile. Like Jesus, he does not curse his enemies. He, he does kindly seek to demonstrate to them that he has not cast off the Jewish faith, but has come to understand that to which it was always pointing. And he mentions, by the way, this truth has been revealed to me by God himself. Paul has seen and understood and believed the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament had promised and expected. He hadn't desecrated and violated the temple. He was doing exactly what was expected. And so I pray that I pray that you're not nearly beaten to death by an angry mob, but in whatever situation you find yourself and you have an accuser, you have someone who is at your throat physically or metaphorically, I pray that the Lord would help us to follow in the steps of our Lord Jesus, to follow in the steps of Paul, and that we would learn to treat our enemies even with dignity and respect. So that's one thing we learn from this. But a second thing is that there is an intricate link between, if you think about what Ananias says to Paul in verse 16, there's an intricate link between baptism, faith, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins. Ananias says to the newly converted Paul, what are you waiting for? Rise, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now, you could preach a whole sermon on baptism and this text, and uh, it still wouldn't answer all the questions. There's grammatical questions and issues here um, that we won't try to, we're not going to get all tangled up in, but hopefully we can make uh, some sense of this. Because it is, a, it is a peculiarly phrased sentence. Baptism is connected very clearly here in some way with washing away sins. But it's also connected with calling on Christ's name. And so, I'll state it up front and then we'll sort of try to work it out. Baptism and the washing of way of sins are connected in this text. And yet, it is the calling on Christ's name that makes the washing uh, effectual. Do you see that here? The, the, the Holman Standard Bible helpfully brings out the nuance of the, pa- of the passage here by translating the verse, Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins by calling on His name. The, the grammar of the text itself does not give us liberty to say that a person could, without faith, pass through the waters of baptism and automatically be forgiven and cleansed from his sins. Right? Baptism is not magic. Rather, when a person passes through the waters of baptism, he or she identifies with Christ. Christ underwent the flood of God's judgment on the cross. He was baptized in his sufferings there. And he was buried in death, and he was raised to a newness of life in his resurrection. And so, through the Christian rite of baptism, we, pro- we publicly profess Jesus to be ours. His life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to God's throne. 
So baptism is, among other things, an outward expression of calling on the name of the Lord. And so, there is something very real, something very spiritual that takes place in the act of baptism for the one who has faith in Jesus. This passage also highlights something else about baptism in the Christian life. Baptism is very important in the Christian life and should not be unduly delayed in the Christian life. If a person has believed in Christ, he ought to make that faith public and not refuse to be baptized. Ananias, why do you wait, Paul? There is an indissoluble link between baptism and the forgiveness of sins. Faith, of course, is also linked as well. But consider what Paul says in Colossians 2. He says that we are buried with Christ in baptism and raised with Him through faith in God who raised Him from the dead. Peter says elsewhere, 1 Peter 3, 21, that baptism saves us. He links baptism there with the flood and he describes baptism as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection. And so although Peter doesn't explicitly mention the word faith in that text, it's hard, very hard, not to see faith standing right alongside and supporting that phrase, an appeal to God for a good conscience. And so the person who wants to claim allegiance to Jesus Christ, but refuses to follow Him through the waters of baptism, should really consider whether or not he has in fact been forgiven of his sins. And so we are called to prize and prioritize and to love the sacrament of baptism by this passage. So we want to be gentle in our, in our speech, even with our enemies. We want to love uh, the gifts that God's given to us in baptism. And then third, faith. God calls us to walk by faith, not by sight. Jesus tells Paul to go to Damascus, and only there will he be told what has been appointed for him. And then he literally has to be led by the hand because he's blind temporarily. He has to be led by the hand by his companions to take him where he needs to go. And then even in the temple in verses 17 through 21, despite his own belief that his credentials will gain him an audience, his credentials as a zealous Jew persecuting the way, he believes that is going to be useful. But no. He must trust the Lord and he must go. Not to his brothers of the flesh. Not to his his kinsmen of the country. He must go to the world. He must go to the Gentiles. Paul teaches us this lesson explicitly in 2 Corinthians 4.18. He says we must not look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And then in 2 Corinthians 5.7, he says, we walk by faith, not by sight. And so brothers, sisters, do you live by faith? Not simply, have you once believed that Jesus Christ died for your sins, but do you live day in and day out by faith? Are you willing to take God at His word and trust that He loves you and that He cares for you? Right? Faith is not a blind leap into the dark. The author to the Hebrews tells us that it is the assurance of things hoped for. It is a conviction of things not seen. 
Christians should be people of conviction. We are a principled people. Are we? Are we a principled people whose principles are derived not from the schemes and machinations of man, but from God's very Word? And no matter how grim things look at times, faith offers us hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame. Real, deep, robust hope in the living God who cares for His people every day and is bringing them to glory and is bringing glory to us as He brings heaven to earth, that faith, it doesn't put us to shame, but it leads us to be bold and courageous for Christ. Paul left Jerusalem by faith, and now he's returned by faith. Remember, everyone said, Paul, beatings probably imprisonment, you might even die if you go back to Jerusalem. He says, I know. But the Spirit has constrained me. I have a ministry and I have a course that I must finish. I have received it from the Lord and I will not stop. So what about us? What about you? What is your ministry? What is your race, your course that you must finish as individuals, as families, and for us as Redeemer Baptist Church, for us as a church. I pray that we would, in fact, be a people of faith today, tomorrow, and to, for thousands of generations till the Lord be pleased to return. Amen.